I just wanted to come here. To Winkies? This Winkies. Okay. Why this Winkies? It's kind of embarrassing. Go ahead. Welcome, all you damp and aquatic old working stiffs, to the Winkies Diner Podcast. Uh, we're bringing back the old intro, real special, like, just for today. I'm your host, Bretton Campbell, joined by Harry Edmondson Cornell, the other host. That one's me. I'm that one. Yeah, we, we, we often say we're rusty podcasting because we haven't done it in a while, but I think this is our biggest gap ever, maybe. This definitely takes the cake, yeah. Uh, and that's, we'll, we'll talk more about why that is probably towards the end of this episode, but for now, yeah, yeah. we're just rusty as fuck. Yeah, extremely, extremely rusty, but we needed some practice. I thought it'd be a, a chill thing to do. Get back on the old bicycle, get, get, get some practice podcasting again. So here we are doing a, a just for fun, very damp and aquatic episode of the Winky Steiner podcast. The theme for today is, you know, watery movies, aquatic movies. Wet. These movies, very wet movies. They're wet, extremely so. So, which one should we do first? Isn't we, that nostalgic? Back at we, back with the old segment. <laughs> we should do. I, I actually have an opinion. Uh, shockingly, we should do yours first. Okay, let's do mine first then. That that's good. That was probably our quickest uh, decision segment yet. So we're gonna do mine first. I picked as a more or less as a companion to this film, and also. To give Harry an opportunity to talk James Cameron, I picked yep, the nineteenth. 19th... Brenton's really just trying to set me up to like vamp and soapbox this episode. It's gonna be rough. Sure, uh, uh-huh. sure. Well, why not? I mean, you gotta live a little sometimes. So I picked the nineteen eighty nine sci fi drama The Abyss, the uh, the alien esque uh, turned to Spielberg esque uh, sci fi romp from nineteen eighty nine sci fi blockbuster. Um, so yeah, we're talking Cameron today. You had said off mic that this is your, probably your favorite Cameron, though you also yeah. admitted that that's a fairly low bar because you're not a fan of the guy overall. Uh, as I think I've I've hinted at on this pod, I have big, I got big Cameron problems. It's the thing I've yeah alluded to um, and threatened to to drop my steaming take on at some point. Ew. Ew. Hell yeah. Um, hate the phrasing I just used there. Taking a big old steaming take on the pod. <laughs> I just woke up, dear listeners. It's gonna be it's gonna be a time doing this doing this here thing. Um yeah, but I do kinda like the abyss, ultimately. I, I think it's well, I, I don't want to launch straight to big Cameron takes because it's it, it's sort of like that context is important for why I think this is the good one. But um what what was your what was your sort of immediate impression walking away from this movie? You'd never seen it before, right? I had not. I thought it was incredibly audacious and wild, structurally a little bizarre and unfocused. But I think the fact that it's so unfocused and weird and essentially shifts genre midway through the movie is what makes it interesting. Mm. Um, I, I really can't see anything like this being made anymore, which is kind of funny considering the take I'm going to bring up at the end of the show. But I don't know. It's it just feels. Re- you know, 
truly the product of a of a unique artist no matter what you think of it i think mm-hmm. um and that that yeah that's what i just found so interesting about it. it it's essentially you know aliens but underwater for the first you know hour and a half of the film and then it eventually becomes a spielberg film um uh, which i think works okay in this cut like I'm going to say later, I think the the uh, changes to the theatrical cut are actually a little superior to this. I think it makes it a little more focused. Uh, in particular, I think all the Cold War stuff uh, doesn't really work considering the second half of the movie, um, considering what the movie turns into in the second half. But uh, regardless, I think it's very interesting and it's very fun and it's incredibly unique. It's a, it's a real James Cameron vehicle. He really goes for it. He really does go for it. He really always goes for it. I think no matter what you think of him, you, you got to admit, <laughs> guy always goes for it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's his biggest calling card. I think even when he's working, you know, within other genres or he's retooling other movies that came before, like the the bigness of a James Cameron movie is like, you know, his biggest trademark as an auteur kind of thing. Sure. I think that's a that's a reasonable take. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, like I said, this this movie, uh, you know, begins sort of in its aliens incarnation or alien incarnation, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. which is kind of ironic because, of course, he did the sequel, which departs from, you know, the tone of the original alien mm-hmm. or so I'm told. I've never actually watched aliens, but I mean, th- th- this really reminded me of Alien, the first part of yes, this movie. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. I think um, there's more here that is a- alien than aliens for sure. Yeah, very sort of naturalistic, a lot of handheld, very muted, you know, color palette, a lot of wires and machinery, you know. Uh, but but I would say the problem with the first part of this movie and why I think I messaged you saying I was sort of un- unengaged mm. coming up to, you know, the hour, hour 15 mark is that it's like Alien. It's that there's, there's no real characters for the first, you know, chunk of the movie. A lot of the characters are sort of horror movie types, honestly, and that they have one quirk kind of thing there's two different characters that are almost defined by the music they listen to at the start there's one character who you know she listens to country music and then there's another guy who listens to ska at the start he does have the rat as like a secondary quirk later on but for the first little bit of the movie i was kind of confused as to why these sort of you know slasher movie archetypes were being dumped into a film that you know tonally reminds you more of something like alien yeah, it but, doesn't have, but but lacks even the sort of you know you could make a case for there being a slasher in Alien. And there's no slasher in this first half. No, and you're expecting it too. Like as soon as you see the Ska guy, right? I'm sure everybody was thinking that that guy's gonna die eventually. When when country western girl, I actually like that scene a lot where they're all singing because I do think it sets. Oh up yeah, yeah, the tone yeah, yeah. of them as workers and, and the sort of every man nicely but yeah i was watching with natasha and she did literally turn to me when she came on screen and said oh she's gonna die she's gonna die now <laughs> which she, yeah. she doesn't but no you're right no, that no. It reads that way <laughs> the 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 only guy who dies right is like or the only guy out of the main crew who dies is like the paranoid soldier guy right no am i wrong about that no or, there's well there's like char- people working on machinery and stuff right the, there's those characters that that drown um blocked in that room oh okay yeah down. okay i was yeah i guess i was thinking more like the the crew crew who sort mm-hmm. of uh, you know coalesces after they sort of fall into the abyss kind of thing like you're expecting when you're starting the movie that it is going to be a slasher especially with the sort of bait and switch opening you know 
you where yeah. where the submarine is getting accosted by the mysterious creature but instead it's basically like what if aliens were actually well it's not quite what if aliens were nice in the, in the um in the director's cut but it's like you know what if aliens <laughs> had less threatening intentions than you, you initially expected from the slasher movie. Um, in, in the, in the theatrical, the aliens are just nice, good, good guys. Uh, in, in the, in the, um, in the director's cut, they want to kind of destroy the world, but nonetheless, it's yeah, not, definitely not a slasher. There's a, they're, you know, oh, they're using a sort of threat in the, in the full, full blown cut that we watched. That is, yeah, he just like, couldn't get that effect to look the way he wanted it and so it didn't ever make it into the theatrical oh um, like the way the waves yeah sort of? yeah that's right, like a right, restored right. sort of sort of redux of that effect apparently oh um, interesting fun effect talk while we're in this first chunk that scene where they where they demonstrate the liquid oxygen with the rat that's just legit mm-hmm. they're just doing that for realsies Wait, really? I, w- I was wondering that. Like, is that an actual thing? That Yeah, I think that was pretty fascinating. I love all the tech stuff at the start. Um, and especially how it pays off later on with sort of the, the, the series of incredible scenes we get uh, towards the second half of the movie. Mm-hmm. Wh- wh- which I definitely prefer overall, of course. I, I think, like, once the, um, once the human threat is kind of eliminated uh, towards the middle of the movie... Uh, once that that paranoid guy kind of kicks it, I think it becomes a much much better movie because I, I I almost think he's more interested too in like th- these sort of feats of survival, these sort of extraordinary human feats. Um, you know, see that's that's interesting because that runs really counter to why I think this is the most competent James Cameron movie. Weirdly, okay, g- hit, hit me. What do you <sighs> mean? What do you mean by that? Okay, take a deep breath. Um. So a big problem I have with James Cameron in general is he likes to present a layer of themes just below the surface that I think rarely hold together, like at all. Hmm. Um, I think Aliens is a great um, is a great one to to pull on here as as a sort of counterpoint. Aliens is you know his quote unquote Vietnam War movie. It's it's what if I take Alien and I turn it into an action movie that people will like, but then right underneath that layer of action movie, uh, of sort of horror action, there's this yeah. layer of, this is about uh, motherhood and the Vietnam War. And the problem is, if you... It's almost a little like we were talking... It's not quite, I think, as as uh, nihilistic or pretentious as something like Hereditary, because I think um, it is... It is just... He's not presenting it couched in that like look how deep i am thing mm-hmm. um but he is still very very clearly and, and we'll talk about it and is and is often quite bordering on didactically sort of presenting this other layer of themes uh that then once you sort of meet the movie on its terms and look at those themes i think they they really tend to collapse right um, aliens is a movie that is nominally about like look at this American war machine sort of failing or whatever, and there's there's hints of like this over the top presentation or something that like almost it, it it almost feels like he's gesturing at like a Starship Troopers esque parody, but he he never gets there, and instead mm-hmm. immediately flips back into what I think his default mode is and why I think he he tends to at least presentationally undo a lot of these themes is. Um, is then he immediately starts fetishizing the action and the guns and the explosions, 
uh, right. he, he he obviously is more uh, his language, it, like his cinematic language, is a lot more coherent. But there's almost at times I think a Michael Bay esque like, you know, Avatar is isn't war bad and isn't planetary like you know environmental exploitation bad, but also like, God fucking damn it, isn't it cool when I smash these robots together and some trees burn? Like, doesn't that just look fucking sick? And then Aliens, of course, is another great example I think because. Um, not only does it have this layer of presentation that I think helps make his intent fall apart, but it also just doesn't hold upon closer examination because his metaphor is what there, that the American war machine was unprepared for the vicious and inhuman war aliens that are the Viet- Vietnamese. Like that, like mapping in bloodthirsty aliens for a whole culture is really questionable. <laughs> Um, Fair enough. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I also think he's incapable of having a woman in a lot of his movies who is strong without couching that in either motherhood or wifedom, and normally it's motherhood. Uh, and that he takes a what is already a cool, strong character in Ripley and says like she doesn't, she can't actually be motivated to to save anyone unless she she has this motherly instinct kick in, which is frustrating. Right. And um, no. Sorry, go ahead. I'll. No, that's okay. Um, yeah, I would just say I, I, I would say this movie I think is a is a perhaps a particular and kind of special case then because I think he is uniquely, well, well, it's it's hardly controversial to say that James Cameron is uniquely interested in the deep sea, you know, he he's <laughs> interested in that in real life, and I think. I think that interests him more than the action in this particular case. Like, well, I think it's almost inarguable that he's uninterested and he's less interested in the first half of the movie compared to the second. And that's part of why I think it works is instead of trying to do a movie about a war that is a war movie, he kind of pulls a, a thing here and he takes his paranoia and centralizes it in a small cast of characters in an isolated area the only time a gun appears in this movie, it's scary. Like, it's not cool. It's dangerous. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I think, like, the, one of the worst things you could level at this movie is that it's, like, super, super didactic in that second half about about its goals. But I think at least it's coherent in a way that his movies aren't normally. He also, by all accounts, is very hard to work with and has a long history of not crediting female co-writers on his movies. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, rip. I, yeah, like, like I, I get that. Like, I, I would almost say too. I, I haven't seen uh, the other Cameron movies you're describing, but mm-hmm. I mean, I think it is possible to have a movie that says war bad, but also aren't guns cool. Like, I think you can, you can, you, you can sort of valorize the, you know, the aesthetic value of something with well thinking it's bad in real life. But I guess it depends on how he executes that. I can't really say because, like I said, I, I've only seen like Avatar in this. I think I've never even seen Aliens. Uh, I've never seen Titanic either, except for you know scraps of it. You, um, Titanic is another exception, but also he's straight up pretty upfront about how he only made Titanic to fund expeditions of the Titanic and like change right. the whole story last minute because of that song. Like that's not a passion project narratively for him. Have, yeah, yeah you're, yeah. you're an educated human, Breton. Uh, have, have you read the the Stephen Greenblatt essay, Invisible Bullets? No, no, unfortunately not. That's the thing that that I was I've been thinking about in regards to Cameron. St- Stephen Greenblatt has this is like a, a historicism sort of philosopher, a new historicism sort of philosopher. He has this essay called um, 
Invisible Bullets that's about, um, he talks about uh, the idea of, of um, I've got to make sure I get these words right because I'm just, just awake now. He talks oh, a lot yeah. about the idea of, of subversion and containment. And he uses mm-hmm. an example of of Elizabeth an Elizabethan English account of um, a non Christian community and the way that the the person interacting with them Thomas Harriet uh, in this is in fifteen eighty eight um, sort of this this book he he talks about details the way that he that Harriet sort of converts the natives um, right and um, specifically in that you know this is a guy who believes that that. God is, you know, the the controller of all things, and then he mm-hmm. he meets a place where they don't believe that. Probably the first people like that he's ever met who don't at least believe in some version of our God, of their, right. of his God rather, uh, certainly mm-hmm. not mine. And um, and instead of instead of that testing, instead of expressing any doubt or testing him, it sort of strengthens his convictions and he contains it, and and right. then he takes this analysis and if anyone who knows philosophy better than me can explain to me if I'm fucking this up, please. But the, the essay then takes this and applies it to, um, the, the, the series of Shakespeare plays, um, the Henry, the fourth part one and two and Henry, the fifth and, um, and how, you know, these were plays that played for the monarchy at the time, but are about, a bad person doing bad things to become king, which yeah. which feels subversive. But then, but then, from the outside, you can then contain that. You you can justify that by saying, well, he becomes king at the end, and king is ordained by God, so everything nasty he did has to be right. the act of God. And it doesn't have to just be um, using the religious metaphors just because that's the like authoritarian sort of regime of the time. Not mm-hmm. doesn't have to be applied to religion and i think there's like a thing in cameron cameron movies where he's kind of doing the subversion of the containment all himself where he he will present like look war is bad but then by the end it's sort of a movie about you know the one the one good soldier who stands up and does the war for the right reasons sure Uh, it it sort of all it, it sort of then justifies the war being bad and i think the abyss in its divorced sort of presentation of war uh divorce is a funny choice of words given the plot of this movie but um uh i think he he manages to express this doubt at the of at the sort of military industrial complex a lot better because we just get this one cracked soldier operating on orders from a higher up that have sort of you know he's not even getting updates he's just sort of both literally and figuratively collapsing under the pressure as a human being right and I'd argue that the the closest the movie ends up feeling like it has to a villain, even though it's not dramatized at all, is his sort of commanding officer up on the boat up top, who's sort of right. responsible for this all. And, and he quite deliberately in the in the happy climax, like throws a little barb at that, at, at that guy's way. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. so I think it like presents a much more cohesive critique of that stuff than his other movies, even though, again, it is super didactic. There's a scene where aliens play a PowerPoint presentation about why war is bad. Like it's not. <laughs> yeah, which I guess I can get to that I think is kind of the weakest part, and which is sort of removed from um, the extended version, which might you know enhance your thesis. Then, if I think, uh, mm. or removed from the theatrical version, might might enhance your own thesis because I I don't know. I feel like he didn't really know what he actually had. 
I don't think those scenes are necessary at all. And I actually, I think like, a, you know, the Cold War stuff is actually sort of a, a subordinate theme to the, to the, to the central ideas of the movie. I think it's more generally about, you know, uh, you know, finding, you know, compassion or companionship in, in uh, you know, the abyss, you know, sure. it, it, it is. That's the other reason I think this movie's like core works for me is that you're totally right. The other theme is James Cameron, being like, damn, it's it's sad. Ladies keep divorcing me for always wanting to go to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> like, which sure, is, well, that, which that, is that certainly it. fueled it, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's funny. Yeah, I I, I didn't think of that, but I, I suppose that could be a component. Uh, it of totally it as is. Well. He was he was. I, I want to say, uh, had just gotten di- divorced. Like, it it is totally his, and his current wife will say. Uh, yeah, he separated with his wife during filming The Abyss. Oh, interesting. Um, he His current wife will say, like, um, yeah, uh, he and producer Gail Ann Hurd decided that The Abyss would be their next film. Uh, basing the character of Lindsay on Hurd, finished it by the end of it, 1987, Cameron and Hurd were married before The Abyss, separated during pre-production, and divorced two months after principal photography. So oh, it's, yeah. it, it's super... And, and his... His new wife, um, or his current wife, like the one that seems to be sticking around, has basically said, like, yeah, I mean, the trick was learning to be okay with James Cameron fucking off to the ends of the earth for his holidays, or the bottoms of the earth, I guess. So I do super think this is his movie about divorce, and even specifically, divorce brought along by underwater escapades. Like, it's it's sure. a very personal theme, that center one. Yeah, you, which I think makes it work, and I think, I think like the Cold War stuff or the paranoia, of the guy who dies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, serves as a contrast to that idea. You know, no, I, I you think know, that that's a great read. Yeah, only finding sort of enemies or, or you know, the the other or whatever you want to call it in the abyss kind of thing, which is why I think the PowerPoint presentation comes across as so strange and awkward it seems like the actual central conflict you know thematically is resolved when they find the city mm. and it's it's sort of an incredible moment even though you know it, it might look a little you know it, it doesn't look super well composited i i suppose today but i mean it's a good moment especially like i said contrasted with you know how mm-hmm. naturalistic sort of the sub and everything you know all the rest of the tech is you know mm-hmm. apart from the alien ships uh and that feels like a real resolution of the actual movie i feel uh and then and then you just kind of get this weird war bad kind of powerpoint presentation war bad but saved by the ultimate wife guy um yeah sure i mean it's it's very strange it feels it, like unnecessary conflict at the end I, uh I don't know. I've heard a lot of people point out that they think this is Cameron trying to do the finale of 2001. Um, oh, yeah. Which I think is is an interesting perspective because I do think what, what it's missing is that is the filmmaking weirdness that something like the finale of 2001 has. It, it's, it feels grounding the PowerPoint presentation and not making it feel like dreamlike or surreal or intense really does a lot to, to sap it of what you know, there's maybe a version yeah. of this scene that that feels a little more symbol heavy, a little more intense, a little more frightening. That is a little more powerful, and it is kind of just this triumphant and slightly flat monotone. Um, even with yeah. the danger of the impending tsunamis and stuff, there doesn't really feel uh, there's not a lot of tension here at the, at this point. And I do wonder if if 
you know, he'd presented something with a bit more intensity, a bit more weirdness, like that would have mitigated some of what you're feeling there. Well, well yeah, I, I think even making it a bit more vague or cutting some stuff out, which would, would, would be good, which mm-hmm. which the theatrical version does seem to do. Apparently, Interesting. in the theatrical, all the in the theatrical, the only thing sort of that they communicate to him is the message he sends to his wife kind of thing. Like the uh, that's the only thing they kind of um, they kind of send to him, like they project the message that he types to her on screen as, you know, a sign that. Yeah, you know that, that that they see each other as fellow kind of sentient, loving beings or whatever. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, it, it's still a grounded thing. It's not obviously as abstract as something like two thousand and one, but uh, you're right. There is something very, very strange and kind of didactic and monotone about the ending conflict. And I also, I should add, I feel like sort of returning to the surface for a little bit during that conflict also kind of takes you out of it sort of thing like i think you got to stick mm. with the the characters the underwater yeah, yeah yeah like i think and i think it, even though there's this threat of the tsunami it undercuts that a little bit and i think again i think that's cut out of the theatrical version i'd re- i'd really like to see theatrical mm. i think the the only other things it really acts as is some of the earlier cold war stuff which again i don't think is super necessary apart from the guy they have conflict with earlier on and i think again that that's subservient to the central ideas that he's dealing with. I don't think it needs to be hammered home too much. I, I think I, I think I would make that trade. I think I would keep the slightly clunkier finale for more of the characters up front, which I hear like you, you, you don't just lose some of that cold, cold war stuff. Is my understanding you lose some uh, of the like interaction okay. and character moments. And I do think uh, Cameron, even even though you're right, they're very tropey as Cameron always is, I do think he does a, he does a, a serviceable job of engaging you with this crew and their, and their struggle. Um, and the fact that, you know, they care each, about each other. You really believe like Edward Harris, Ed, Edward, you really believe Ed Harris's protectiveness for his crew and like his, his concern and, and stuff through all that. And, um, and, and the stuff between him and his wife is, is I think some of the best realized character stuff in any James Cameron movie, probably due to how, you know, much it was cutting close to home for him at the time, but their, you know, their interactions feel so much more um, developed, and and I don't know, I, I I like the 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 fleshed out version of that of that stuff, and I think I'll take the clunkier finale for that. I also like seeing hmm. the aliens. Um, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, I, I think I, I think I would prefer, like, a, you know, a sort of middle ground. Yeah. Maybe a retooled ending, but you keep yeah. the earlier stuff. I, I think you're right. Uh, that you could you could go in and shave some stuff out of that ending and, and maybe not solve it, but certainly improve it. Um, right. Yeah, and I think you're right. The early stuff is good, especially I, I was thinking the scene where they're singing. Like, I mean, you could cut something like that, but I think... It's it's kind of important to mm-hmm. to your understanding of the characters earlier on, and it's one of the few things that I think completely escapes from tropes earlier on. Mm-hmm. Not that tropes are inherently bad. I was just saying uh, a couple of the sort of tertiary characters are mm-hmm. a little too tropey, I think, earlier on. Uh, but yeah, o- overall, I think it's still a very a very fine movie, despite some of the quibbles we've had uh, with I- it. I think- the effects in general like look amazing. You can kind of rely on Cameron for that. Most of the underwater stuff holds up really well. The crew hated filming it because he was just uh, sticking them in a giant tank of water repeatedly. Um, oh. <laughs> like, yeah, really hated working with him. Some of them. It was not a fun shoot, apparently. 
I mean, it 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 it, it certainly paid off. It does feel mm-hmm. very visceral, visceral and physical. Extremely uh, a lot long of... shoot too, because they could only be in the tank for so long that like you had oh, to constantly yeah, yeah, reset. Yeah. It sounded sounds rough. Yeah, I mean, it sounds horrific, especially filming the scenes, you know, like when when the woman uh, volunteers to die temporarily. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that That's an incredible scene. But it, yeah, mm-hmm. it also sounds incredibly rough to film. Um, I, I guess we could go through some quick things we like about the yeah. action scenes because there's a lot to talk about. I like how long he holds on her being dead when they're trying to resuscitate her. It's rough. Uh, N- Natasha was so tense through that whole chunk of the movie that she punched my knee at one point and I'm still bruised. <laughs> she it, was, it really she is. It. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He holds so, so, so long mm-hmm. on it. Uh, way longer than I think most people would do. Um, that you, you know, you really do start to believe that she's actually dead. When, of course, things like that rarely fool, you know, moviegoers mm-hmm. today. Um, the the scene the the scene where he like physically confronts Coldboy guy is also incredible too. I like the the POV shot with the the light sort yes, of spinning in between. Lights, the intense. It's it's one of the best moments I think on the soundtrack, which I found a. I was noting I found the soundtrack maybe a little generic, but like that yeah, beat, too. the yeah. drums in there, ugh, so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that entire scene. The scene where those guys die initially, uh, again, is quite good mm-hmm. with with the the sp- sort of spilling waterfalls. That whole um, that whole sequence where the crane falls and misses them, and then starts to drag them over the edge, and and stuff starts to break and flood. Like that scene is very tense and and. You know, the way he he manages to save his life using his wedding ring is like a great little micro beat. There's so much good stuff. Yeah, in yeah. Yeah, uh, you, you almost think that maybe he has to to adapt other people's screen uh, screenplays more if, if sort of the writing is a problem you have with Cameron. Because I think he, he he's one of the best blockbuster filmmakers just, you know, purely working with action beats kind of thing. Um, maybe it's just you know the the mechanics of storytelling that he occasionally has a problem with, sort of thing. He, he I, and maybe fueled by this movie's flop, like is so is such a a to to my mind qualitatively like a B plus commercial voice with these loftier themes that don't quite add up. Um, and yeah. I mean that, that's something to talk about with this movie is it does flop, and he becomes someone who I think is very careful about working on what's the most commercial version of everything he's doing from here on out even though this movie still has some of the trademark camera things like there has to be a happy ending um yeah there has to be a even titanic people forget like uh has a happy ending right it it ends mm-hmm. sad and then immediately cuts to the characters reuniting in heaven he can't not send the audience away feeling good which is i think a big trick uh, in right. in cameron's success like you can see you know the 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 groundedness of the sort of grounded level of this the the physicality and the level of tension and stuff is is i think something that Cameron doesn't really go back and do again um mm-hmm. he doesn't yeah. really make movies this tense ever again um yeah i mean i i certainly don't remember avatar being that tense or that personal uh, you know which yeah. is which can be okay but uh you know but th- those are my favorite things about this one, you know. Like that's, I think, why this one stands out for me. Uh, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's a lot messier than perhaps mm-hmm. is, you know something like Avatar is, but it's certainly more interesting. I would say. What did, what did you think about Michael Bean's performance as soldier losing his mind? Oh, that very sweaty. It's a it's a very good sweaty performance. He, uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, he's he's really going for it. D- doesn't doesn't sort of rely on too many ticks though, which I think is nicely, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think all the performances are pre- are pretty okay in this movie. You know, there's some characters that are just supposed to be the comic relief or whatever, mm-hmm. but I think everybody does an okay job. And I think especially scenes of incredible intensity where they're sort of joking around to relieve tension or they're panicking. Mm-hmm. You know, human moments like that are when when uh, the central characters really shine. Which is why why I like uh, that that you know paranoid soldier guy has dispatched earlier on because then the conflict becomes you know sort of you know internalized kind of thing. Mm. It, you know, it's more about the group effort to sort of sustain morale and control their own emotions than it is you know anything yeah, sure. external or overly violent or physical or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why, you know, I, I definitely feel like the second half is stronger. Well, one of many reasons, but that's one big reason. Yeah, pretty good one. Pretty good one for our frustrating segment. Sure, yeah, it's it's good. It's good we went went to something fairly non-frustrating uh, for our first pod in a while. Yeah, it's uh, comfy. Yeah, there you go. Do we do? We, is that it? Is that all we have to say about the abyss? Should we get into some halftime? Woo! Yeah! Half time. <laughs> what you what you been up to? Not much. I'll go over a couple of things. Um I watched the new Makoto Shinkai movie in theaters uh last week. Had a had a decent distribution, I believe. It's the same same uh uh company that was distributing the new yuasa movie i believe which will probably probably hit theaters soon or has already hit theaters i'm not entirely sure uh but i watched weathering with you at the landmark cinemas in canada ontario uh is that is that doxing myself i guess it doesn't matter that much right i don't fucking live in ottawa nobody's gonna come to my house and knife me anyway i guess it doesn't matter I, I, i think you're good I think I think I'm okay. Uh, anyway, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I I I, I heard some, some some negative buzz going into it. Uh, I seem to get the impression going into it that it was kind of a return to his, his usual uh, uh, mode of filmmaking after your name, which I think you know the majority of people agree is is a little bit of an anomaly for him. Uh, I've only seen one other uh, movie besides one other movie of his besides this in your name, which is five centimeters per second. And I can certainly uh, empathize with people who have a lot of problems with him given that movie, because I think it's pretty dire. Uh, But I I don't think this is quite, uh, you know, the return to his, his regular mode of filmmaking that I, that I, that I thought it would be going in. I think it's kind of okay. Um, so I guess for people that who don't know, it's about a, a guy who meets a girl. Pretty shocking, uh, considering damn. it's a Shinkai Slow movie. He he, he never he never makes movies about that. This is actually his his first movie about teenage romance <laughs> he's he's ever made. He he's never done that before. Uh, but it's a th- this time it's a, about a guy who who meets a girl who can control the weather. I suppose she's called a you know a sunshine girl. She prays a lot. She can make it sunny when it's raining. Uh, and yeah, it, you know, given that it's a modern Japanese film about the weather, it's obviously about climate change a little bit, uh, more than a little bit. 
Um, but I think that one of the main problems with it is that he, he, he sort of ha- has difficulties wringing drama out of his premise initially. So he has these sort of running threads of, of conflict that is sort of similar to maybe the first half of the abyss, I'd say, mm. um, don't ha- have a ton to do with the actual central themes of the movie and, and feel kind of j- just like in- incredibly contrived methods of sustaining conflict until we get to the conclusion. Um, the conclusion itself is pretty interesting, though, especially for somebody like Shinkai, um, who, 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 again, like Cameron, you know, likes to tie up his endings. Not, not, not that he likes happy endings, you know. The ending of Five Centimeters isn't happy, but I think he likes, you know, um, um, emotionally sort of closed ending kind mm. of thing. Like, he, he doesn't want you feeling ambiguous, even if you feel bad. Like, I, I don't think he wants you to think different ways about his ending kind of thing, uh, which I think he really wants you to do here. Um, so so I don't, I'm not uh, convinced that the ending entirely works, but I think it's quite quite audacious kind of thing and i think it's i i I don't i don't mean to be too harsh on on the current you know landscape of animated film but i think it's something to support if you uh you know if you want to support an animated property that's actually interesting other than like leica or something like that it's kind of difficult for me to think of you know you know animated feature films that are actually trying anything terribly unique these days Mm. Um, you know, if, I, I I don't know if I've seen a Pixar movie I've loved in like a decade, to be honest. Um, you know, and then there's just kind of Disney uh, doing their thing. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's getting a wide distribution. I think people should support it regardless. Um, the the other major thing I checked out, the other major thing I finished, I guess, is the 2017 Platinum Games uh joint. Uh, direct, directed, written and directed by Yoko Taro. I finished Near Automata uh, a couple weeks ago. Well, m- probably like a week ago. Damn. And, and yeah, yeah, I finished the whole thing. Did all the endings, got it all done. Um, it's... <laughs> I'm kind of interested to, to, to go back and play his other games, um, considering that, that people say like, Near Automata is the real polished one kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, n- not that not that the combat in Near Automata is terrible or anything, but I, I certainly wouldn't say it's it's the draw of the entire experience. I I think I think the frustration starts to set in a little bit when you realize that all the combat is kind of balanced against this sort of extremely uh, abusable dodge mechanic with an extremely low cooldown. Um, so, so it basically becomes, you know, the choice between being essentially immortal and normal mode once you get some good, you know, health mods or dying in one or two hits on, on hard, uh, because they got to balance it around that because it's so difficult to actually mm. get hit at a certain point. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of filler side quests that I think kind of clog up the map. Especially, you know, given the fact that there's a lot of important lore-related side quests that you actually should do, uh, it 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 sort of tires you out when you're going for that 100% when you got to, you know, engage in the same busy work over and over, and it almost sure. dissuades you from actually doing the important quests. 
but nonetheless, uh, as as most people I think would say, I think it's it's incredibly worth it. I, I I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite games ever, but I would certainly say it has some of my favorite moments in game as in games ever. Mm. In particular, I think you know the last ending is probably one of the best uh, moments in video games. So I think you know it, it's it's certainly worth sticking it out. If anything about the premise sort of intrigues you, especially considering that it's not that long, which is kind of nice. Um, I didn't do everything, but I, you know, completed all the endings and did mm. a good amount of stuff in about 45 hours. So, you know, as far as JRPGs go, it's it's pretty um pretty harmless. So I definitely recommend it. Uh those are the two main things I engaged in this last week or so. What about you? Whew. Okay. What have I engaged in Breton? Hmm. What have you? That's a great question. I mean, I've, I've seen films for sure. For sure seen films. I watched a, a very strange science fiction movie um, uh, not that long ago called A Boy and His Dog. From 75, oh, yeah. it's on the Criterion channel right now, which is how I watched it. Uh, it won't be uh, probably by the time this goes up, so that's kind of a useless plug. Um, it's directed by a guy called L.Q. Jones, who's only made one other movie. It's a, it's a Harlan Ellison story um, about a sort of Mad Max apocalypse and a boy wandering through it with a dog he can talk to telepathically. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, if you'll excuse the sentence I'm about to say, the dog's... Uh, main goal is to sniff out pussy for him. That's the plot of All this right. movie. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, it's a weird one. It's very acidic. Um, the dog and the boy have a very, like, friendly yet adversarial sort of relationship that is quite funny and well-written. Uh, very dark. Uh, pretty unpleasant. Harlan and Ellison expressed uh, some, some, some fair displeasure with the ending. Saying he felt it was, uh, it was like over the top, sort of too sexist and grody, oh, yeah. um, which is both a fine take, but I also think it just kind of works because the whole movie has kind of been operating on that mode. Like honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. you might as well um, just go for it, and uh, the movie sure does go for it. It's a, uh, it's a weird one. It was super stylishly shot. I was I was quite surprised to pull up the cinematographer's credits and see that like there wasn't another recognizable movie somewhere in there. Um, some mm. very nice like desert vistas and and sort of widescreen shots and a and a finale that um, like very quickly. I, I I one of those things where I'm not going to spoil it because the finale just like goes some fucking places that is really weird. Uh, that you might not right. might not anticipate from the sort of movie before it, um, mm-hmm. that uh, I think it would be a shame to to have spoiled for you. But it, it, yeah, it's a weird one. That was a that was an interesting watch. Um, I also have seen watched a sort of low budget cyberpunk adjacent Japanese horror yesterday called Suboro Nogara. Um, mm. uh, my review of that is uh, unpleasant. It's unpleasant. And also, it's amazing. I mean, it's like good, unpleasant, but it is unpleasant. And it's also amazing how much um, permanently fucking up the frame rate of your movie makes it feel fundamentally not okay to watch. Yeah. <laughs> um, made it very stressful. 
uh, in a in a way that was quite intriguing. Uh, very lots of you know metal screws and oh no, what's going to happen to that baby? Uh, kind yeah. of viewing. Um, that was pretty good. I watched. What else have I watched? Did you watch the new David Lynch short on Netflix? Did you watch that? No, I haven't. I haven't yet. That's lots of fun. Uh, What did Jack do? It's been rolling around since like 2016. He just sold it to Netflix, which is a boss move, honestly. And it's it's pretty fun. I watched that. Yeah, I don't know. I rewatched To Live and Die in LA because um, related to our our upcoming viewing, I've been thinking about uh, Mr. Willem Dafoe a lot. And wanted mm. to to watch Live and Die in L.A. again. Good movie. That's my review of To Live and Die in L.A. That movie rules. Um, Hell yeah. Very good movie. Uh, very happy to watch that again. Uh, yeah. That's my... That's kind of breezy. Uh, it's been weird viewing. I've watched like, a lot of short films and, and things. Mm. And, you know, I guess it's been, like, literally forever. Like, you know, I could talk about Uncut Gems or something. But people know Uncut Gems is good. Um, yeah. Go watch Uncut Gems. It's still playing in theaters and places, so one can do that. Uh, yeah, that's that's fuck it. That's all I got. Uh, I guess I guess it's my pick then. I guess it's my pick. It time. is your pick. What did you pick, Breton? It finally came out on home video, so you could watch it. We, yeah. I'm, I, yeah, fucking hell, feeling real rusty, folks. Um, at this at this podcast. Uh, it's the lighthouse. I want to talk about the lighthouse, Breton. Yeah, I, w- I was just thinking. I should have done it at the top of the show. I should have just done his whole monologue at the top, uh, the uh, Willem Dafoe one. I definitely have it saved in my notes. Um, Man, it's... I should have done that. Now I'm regretting. I did. I think it was a good idea to go back to the old intro for an app, though. But at the same time, I think that would have been fun. Oh well, what can you do? You can't look back in anger, as no. Oasis says. Um, so now, now we're here. We're talking about the lighthouse. Finally, we are talking about the lighthouse. Breton, how many times have you seen the lighthouse? One. I know how many times you have seen it, though. Uh, one, one might argue too many times. Uh, yeah, six times, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Hell yeah. yeah! It's been six. Um, Hell yeah! The uh, the I'd watched it when you proposed it. I had just rewatched it, pretty much. And so I was oh, like, yeah. huh, and uh, figured I would rewatch it, uh, but with director's commentary this time. So I have lots of director's commentary facts, uh, mm. which should be fun, should be yes. something to provide. Yeah, which which will be good, too, because I think it's a it's a hard uh, a movie to talk about beat by beat, having seen it once. Um it's it's very much you know constant ramping tension and things like that and and sort of sort of you know vamping on the same vibe so it's it's very difficult to like pick out individual things so that'll be helpful. Well, before uh, I am entirely off the chain here, what uh, what was your sort of sort of first impression of it? Not uh, having seen it a million times. Yeah, not having seen it a million times, having it went seen it once i thought it was incredibly fun which was a pleasant i I wouldn't say it was a total surprise you know from from the trailer and things like that it sort of gave the impression that it was a little sort of looser and more low-key than uh the witch uh but but i I was sort of you know pleased to see that my suspicions were confirmed 
um it's it's very fun kind of kind of rambly loose um in a good way i mean it 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 feels very sort of spontaneous it feels like you know a, a, a sort of project of a of a director and a and a few actors passion you know um which uh you know like i was saying before it feels like kind of the ideal uh follow up to something like the witch um which i mean going back to what we were talking about before uh we mentioned in the abyss section you know hereditary and um you know the presentations of its thematics and stuff and the the whole idea of uh elevated horror like i i think the witch does that much better but i think it, i think it very still very much exists in that um in that kind of um in the that kind of zone like sure. i think the witch is very much attempting to be an important movie kind of about things and i feel like the lighthouse kind of almost exists outside of that it feels like its own kind of independent uh aesthetic object and not that it's even, uh, you know, not about things, which I'm sure we'll talk about because it very much is. But it feels less burdened uh, by this expectation of being this sort of uh, perfect kind of tightly controlled um, object of fascination that, you know, has the, these sort of profound, important things to say. It just feels like, you know, a couple of guys hanging out, which I think is is greatly, greatly to its benefit. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, the lighthouse starring Willem Dafoe and uh, what's his fucking face? Robert you know, Pattinson. Robert, Patton- Robert Pattinson. I briefly forgot the name, which is very healthy. Uh, I have a good memory. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, okay. So yeah. do I. I have notes. I don't need a memory. Um, Hell yeah. The lighthouse owns Breton. It's so good. Yeah. I. Yeah. I. I really like the lighthouse. I mean, obviously that's evident of the number of times I've seen it. Um, yeah. It was a movie where the first time, if you go back and find my first letterbox logging of The Lighthouse, where I walked away the, f- the first viewing in theaters thinking um, that was very good, that it was maybe not as as sort of focused and and sort of maybe not as much a sort of perfect object as The the Witch, but was um, more my shit, like, like just has... We'll get there, but so many of the things the lighthouse is drawing on as as its f- sort of fundamental inspirations are things that I just fucking love. Um, and yeah. then uh, by the third viewing, uh, I I fully felt like like I was actually sort of undervaluing it on that first watch, and that it was um, not just extremely my shit, but also extremely good. And uh, yeah. it's really grown in both my, my, my fondness for it and my estimation of it actually really grew uh, with revisitations. And I feel like a movie of this format and nature, that could very much, it could easily not have sustained me having already seen it six times, you know? And I and, yeah, yeah. And I feel like this did in a way that is very impressive. Um, mm-hmm. It, um, you know, it's a movie that is about two people in a room in a series yeah. of rooms together for about two hours. And uh, yes. often revisiting a movie like that, it can feel a lot longer. It could feel... That, that's something I was expecting going back to it. Um, almost every time I went back to it was, oh shit, is this going to be the viewing where the lighthouse feels slow? Where it feels yeah, yeah, yeah. like clogged yeah. in spots? And by, I think, the third viewing, I it, one of those classic... A classic me move. I got to the theater... I sat down, 
the movie started to roll, and I was incredibly struck, instantly struck with a need to pee. Uh, just <laughs> classic. Yeah, yeah, I'd, that's me. Classic. Be, almost move. every time I go to the theater, yeah. And um, and thought to myself, well, okay, I've seen it on the. This is the third time I've seen it. Uh, I was in the middle of a row, which is always a pain. But I'm like, eh, it's the third time I've seen it. I'll, uh, I'll, uh, you know, I'll just wait till till there's a bit of a, you know, a slower scene, like a scene I recognize as not being straight fire, and uh, I'll get up and pee. And uh, and narrator voice, he never got up to pee, because <laughs> every scene started, and I was like, oh shit, that's this scene. There's really, yeah. it's a remarkably um, moment to moment entertaining movie. And again. The way a way that the witch is not um, Eggers has has used the word like dark comedy or black comedy to describe this movie, and I think it very much is in a lot of in a lot of spots. It, it is viscerally entertaining moment to moment in a way that I think would be easy to underestimate or not assume going into it. I don't know if you found that to be true. No, I kind of agree, but I almost feel too like um, the way the movie plays out is is almost hypnotic in a way you kind of got to accustom yourself to like Mm. a a weird thing that happened with me actually is that i got up in the middle of it um about 45 minutes in and when i sat back down it took me about like 10 more minutes to get back into the movie so to speak like it i I get what you mean that it's it's moment to moment entertaining and it very much is but it has i think another reason why it could sustain itself on rewatches is that it has this sort of Sort of hypnotic vibe mm-hmm. that almost seems to warp time around you, kind of thing, and suck you in. I, it reminds me a lot of. I think the movie it reminds me most of uh, lately's Oshie's Angel's Egg. I think, which is also mm, a very yeah, sort of dark. That. It, it's very much this kind of thing, a little more gothic, but it's very much you know this this dark brooding kind of monochrome kind of hypnotic vibey thing. Uh, I, I I would say it's a little um, it's a little less. Uh, it's a little less explicit with it, you know, things like its symbolism and stuff, which I think is a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a, a weakness compared to this. Um, like, I don't think it quite coalesces in the way that the lighthouse does at mm. the end um, kind of thing. But I think Angel's Egg is still a very fascinating movie. When I watched it, I was wondering if it was kind of a 10 out of 10 in the middle of it, because mm. it's just, it's, it's such a kind of, a magnetic kind of hypnotic vibe, similar to The Lighthouse. But like you said, The Lighthouse is just very kind of funny as a movie, which I think, along with just, you know, things like the actual dialogue itself has contributed to, you know, it, its status is almost like a meme online kind of thing. Yeah, which, not, which I think not is to the extent that Uncut Jam- Jams was the no, breakout A24 meme, but um, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it was wild to me. I saw this movie four times in theaters and twice on home video. Which, by the way, a, a good part of that hypnotic rhythm you're talking about, I did find the smaller screen um, made that less impactful. Although, also, the first time I watched on the smaller screen, I was pretty tipsy, which didn't help. Fair enough. Um, turned yeah, yeah. the lighthouse into a drinking game, which wrecked me. Um, oh, no. The, my rules are on letterbox. It's a very fun time if you want to die. Um, but, yeah. uh, the, uh, the, you know, the power of those drones, the images feel a lot bigger and more monumental obviously on a big screen but in a way that almost surprised me given how small the movie feels on a big screen even you know it is so contained um mm-hmm. but there is something in those the sort of sounds and images overwhelming you that that helps like more quickly put you in that rhythm i think um right, right, right. which is i guess inevitable um mm-hmm. right right from the front we get this great 
sort of tonal shot. We get the the wall of fog, slow yeah. and the sort of chugging rhythmic, like almost a drone, um, mm-hmm. that is slowly revealed as this steamship sort of traveling through the fog. By the way, a full uh, period accurate steamship restored just for this scene. Hell yeah! Um, with just there's like a lobster boat off screen blasting fog. At, um, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, it's it's very industrial, the opening of the movie. There's distant sort of wisps of fog and this huge droning foghorn when he's mm-hmm. when he's arriving on the island. Which they make great repetitive use of. And then we see, yeah, the, the like, tiny lighthouse. And again, mm-hmm. that whole lighthouse, all those locations, the buildings, the lighthouse, all built for this movie. I was shocked. Yeah, to I heard that. that. The lighthouse, yeah, the lighthouse is brand new. It's a new, new lighthouse built just for the lighthouse, which is wild, yeah. Uh, in Nova Scotia, I believe, yeah. is where they shot the lighthouse part. They, they, the only thing they recreated in a studio as well was the kitchen set. Um, mm-hmm. Everything else they shot at location almost all the time. And even a bunch of the kitchen stuff was at location. Um, and we get great moments right off the bat for me that like reward rewatching. We're, like One of the first things Pattinson does before there's any dialogue, before any like beat even happens, is, is see if he can open Willem Dafoe's desk. His writing test. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you obviously take note of him putting the mermaid uh, the mermaid statue in his pocket, but that's meant to be a little more, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, there's lots of these subtle beats. Um, like, I don't know. It's something Eggers talks about in the commentaries almost being too subtle that I that I picked up on with repeat viewings. Like, by the second viewing, I, I had noticed it. Like, there's multiple times where... Um, we're meant to realize that Pattinson has left his his like smoke rolling kit in various places and is going back for it, um, mm-hmm. which I think is not always readily apparent. Uh, a fun, yeah, yeah, a fun set deck fact here is we get this first scene of the room uh, where where Defoe farts for the first time, which yeah. is a recurring motif in this movie. It is, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's an old Sears catalog hanging on a rope, which would have been their toilet paper. Apparently. <laughs> oh no. That's funny, yeah. Eggers is just a fount of this sort of dense historical accuracy, right? Like he weirdly he's willing to cheat in spots. He talks at length in the commentary about how the giant canister of oil Pattinson pulls up the stairs is actually would actually only be at a lighthouse closer to shore than this one and should be smaller. Oh. Which is like a level of research and detail <laughs> that really makes me laugh. But like weirdly, like he's willing to cheat that for the gag of him like lugging that up, upstairs. But he talks about sort of regretting not cheating the spatial geometry of the um the sort of penultimate floor of the lighthouse. The 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 floor with like the clockwork right above the hat right mm. below the hatch. And how basically right. it was a it was eight feet across, not include like that's including the mass taken up by clockwork, and it was just like fucking impossible to shoot it. Apparently, yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of this. They make use of a lot of weird angles. I feel like in that room, and you kind of feel like they're stuffed in a corner almost. But but yeah, I mean, I think that this light. I, I I get wanting to be perfectly accurate, but I think the slight inaccuracies are fine considering it's it's essentially taking place in a well not. Arguably not literally, but you know, taking place in a in a purgatory of sorts, you know, mm-hmm. a, a kind of closed space. Um, I can deal with it, but yeah, you got you got to love all the heavy sweaters that they wear as well. Oh, I know. I I was I was shopping for fishermen's sweaters for weeks after this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. I I have a ton of sweaters, but I could still always use some more. Um, the but the... yeah. It's interesting that Defoe's first interaction is a fart, which again feels really out of place uh, if you're coming straight off the witch. Um, 
that's a different yeah. vibe immediately. And the yeah, first, yeah. the first line of dialogue we get is this little sort of conglomerate prayer that Defoe says. Um, mm-hmm. which, yeah, again, another recurring motif, yeah. The way he says the word ocean just, like, makes me happy every time. The, the, yeah. the, the prayer is, should pale death with trouble dread make the ocean caves our bed? God who hears the surges roll, deemed to save the suppliant soul. Except he says ocean every time. Make ocean. the ocean yeah, yeah. caves our bed. Quite the accent he's putting on. Like Patton says has at the end, he's he's sort of putting on a, a Moby Dick act of sorts, you know, it's, even though he's... It's great. So they pulled a bunch of historical texts that involved interviews with real people written phonetically. Like written oh, no. in um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like lingo is not the word, but um, and, and colloquialism, yeah, kind of thing, yeah, yeah. Uh, dialect. That's the word. In phonetic dialect. Oh yeah, yeah. And so yeah. they they based them. They based their they based Defoe's accent on all the nautical career people in these sources, and uh, Pattinson's and all the farmers. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, Pattinson sounds a little uh, um, New Englandy. He does, um, and I, I find his accent wanders, which I I don't know how intentional that is, but I think you can narrativize that as working given yeah. his character. The, the the only thing they they added that they're not sure is accurate is those pirate R's that Defoe says, those rhotic R's. Um, <laughs> right, right. But but they just were, both Defoe and Eggers were like, we couldn't read this fucking dialogue and not give him pirate pirate hours basically sure yeah yeah and he's basically like playing a character in the movie so it's i think it works yeah this is a movie about people lying about themselves constantly to the point where watching it again it really a few times it really becomes clear there's very very few moments in this movie where anyone's accusing anyone of anything where you have any idea who's right there's no you have no outside reality you don't know if pattinson is a good worker or not even (laughs) like yeah yeah exactly they, they, and i always like movies or stories like this where, where 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 you know it feels like the universe is kind of withholding something mm-hmm. from you kind of thing and you're existing inside this sort of enclosed reality um si- similar to you know well not si- literally similar but you know something like Villeneuve's enemy or something mm-hmm. like that uh wh- where you know contrary to something like Mulholland Drive there's never any moment where the you know the outside reality apart from sort of the psychosis of the characters is actually mm-hmm. revealed uh, uh I- with, Another great example in one of this movie's, I think, chief chief touchstones. I mean, there's a couple Bergman touchstones, but the most obvious one is Persona. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Th- there's a lot of Persona in here, uh, which is mm-hmm. one of my, you know, if I was doing a sight and sound list, Persona might be on that. So, like, I'm I'm here right. for. <laughs> this is the thing. I'm here for the mashing up of of source material this movie's doing, and where we yeah. where, where we knocked someone like uh, Ari Ari Aster for doing that. That's partially because Ari Aster just takes like two and a half movies and puts them together. And instead, this is, you know, Moby Dick and historical texts and Persona and, uh, you know, a a touch of cosmic horror without actual Lovecraft tropes. And it's like a it's like a wider medium, like array of mediums and influences coming into play here to create something kind of new and singular, even if I think it's pretty easy to point to where a lot of the this you know the source ideas come from um, yeah yeah it's it's um hereditary a lot less formally ambitious even obviously true um 
but yeah, so and and like I said, I think that that just adds to the spontaneity of the thing. Mm-hmm. It, it very much feels like something that a couple of friends would just think up, you know, on a lark. You know, why what, why not shoot a movie in a weird you know in a weird aspect ratio in black and white, you know, in the middle of Nova Scotia. It, do you want to know what the aspect ratio is? Because I got it. It's 119 yes. to 1. It's a rare aspect ratio from early sound films. And they shot it a oh. lot with spherical lenses that basically give you a, a taller frame. Uh, uh, like a, a, a taller frame. I don't know how else to put it. And they shot... The latest lens they used was 1930. They mainly shot on lenses from either 1905 or 1930. They were all like antiques that Panavision gave them. The point where yeah. there's one lens they shot on, there's, there's like two zoom shots in the whole movie, and um, that lens, they have no idea what it's from. Panavision just found it in a basement somewhere and was like, this is fucking weird. The Lighthouse Boys will probably like it and sent it to Hell them. Yeah. Um, That's awesome, yeah. And he talks about, about doing this deliberately because, um, A, it just makes the movie feel old, I guess, which it does, except they light it modern. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, it also gives these really nice wide compositions very tall compositions and really great close-ups. And obviously this is being about two characters is a very close-up heavy movie. So it fits. They're also trying to yeah. imitate this film stock that no longer exists called orthochromatic film stock, which was film stock. You can still get it for still photography. You just can't get it for video, which is film stock sensitive to UV and blue lights and not sensitive at all to red light is black oh. and white stock, but that means shots where like they're being lit by lamps or whatever, which happens quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Those, yeah. Because it's not sensitive to red light, that warm firelight, that warm light doesn't actually tint their skin, so it makes it feel colder. Yeah. And the UV sensitivity pulls out extra like blemishes and stuff. So so they're actually using a, a filter. Basically, they're knocking off the um, the, the reds via filter. Um, oh. I definitely looked at some spectrum graphs to figure out what filter this was uh, so I could <laughs> buy it. But... Uh, <laughs> uh, that gives it some of that vibe of like the sky being exposed super white is because of that style. I think that really uh, adds to the, I just love that look so much. Like it's such a, yeah, even from the commercials, that aesthetic is so my jam that I was very excited for that. I think they really do a lot with it here. Yeah. It's a very bleached uh, searing white whenever there is a great deal of light, especially the scene where Willem Dafoe is in the, in the lighthouse uh, mm-hmm. room. Well, the, the light, the, in the light of the lighthouse, the, you know, the top of the lighthouse, the sort of abstract swirling images of the light in front of his face um, all, feels very sort of aggressive in a weird way. All legit light patterns studied from, studied from lighthouses, of course, because of course, Hell yeah. but a fun, a fun yeah. non-director's commentary piece of trivia. That's just a, that's just a me, an original me trivia. Um, that light, really? that bulb that's yeah. in a lighthouse is a Fresnel bulb. And um, okay. that's fundamentally uh, the same type of glass that is put in front of uh, lights on film sets. That's how people light movies using that technology. It, huh. it, 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 it is the source of movie lights. Like it was the, the first of those just fun, just fun facts. There you go. What it was, it was, it was destined to be. Um, we get pretty early on the first scene where Pattinson altercates with a seagull. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you... recurring motif. Yeah. Uh, almost no digital. These were... The seagull was played by three seagulls named Lady, uh, okay. Tramp, and Johnny. And they're rescue bir- <laughs> birds that couldn't survive in the wild that had been trained. And um, Edgar's described them as being very smart and good to work with. 
Yeah, they, they they seem to do a hell of a job. They have very expressive expressive faces. I think the seagull acting is quite in quite is is quite quite good in this flick. Yeah, it's one of those things that that feels like sort of a vague gesture of paranoia towards the start of the film, but yeah. at later later tends to take on more significance, which I think works for the movie. Like, I think w- when you were saying it, it, um, you know, at the top of the show that that on your first viewing it didn't quite feel as you know tight as mm-hmm. the witch, something like the witch. I think that m- that's mainly to do with sort of the early stuff where he's like throwing symbols in front of the viewer without I agree without elaborating on its significance too much. But I think it, I think it more or less begins to coalesce later on, especially when you have you know the contrasting. You know, images of of guilt as, as it relates to sort of sexuality as well with with yeah. you know things like the mermaid or whatever. There's some um, there's some great hints and density of language here in one of the first scenes where um, Defoe and Pattinson really have an altercation. It, it comes it comes after uh, Defoe's "Are you a dullard?" Which I do like Pattinson's face as he reacts to that is so phenomenal. But um, <laughs> uh, the scene where they're at the table and the gull comes up. I think is great because um, it immediately calls ahead to information you don't have yet on a first viewing where um, Pattinson asks Defoe about the previous keeper. Yeah. And then Defoe immediately segues into thinking about the gull, which obviously there's a conflation of those two characters in the movie that isn't revealed until mm-hmm. later on. Um, and, right. And it's, it's such an elegant and subtle like call ahead and it works great that he goes from you know, thinking about this dead man to thinking about the gull to snapping and slapping Pattinson. Eggers Eggers said about that scene, that moment, that slap specifically, uh, which I thought was very funny. He says, the witch endeavors to be subtle. This is the opposite. He's like, I think Hitchcock would have called it on the nose. (laughs) No, no, it's, it's definitely on the nose a lot, but I think, I think that, that, like I was thinking before, sort of contributes to this, the, the, the the very spontaneous texture of the film. I, and like I think you might have thought it was, it was it was yeah like you were saying about the witch. I I think I think it's less the fact that the witch is subtle, but I I I think it just has less uh, symbolic density until the end of the film. Yes, it's a lot more understated maybe... too in general. Yeah, sure. And monotone. And I think maybe it's that's monotone, what... which I don't I don't levy as a diss. Like it is a tone of mm-hmm. dread. This is there's a lot more variation here. There's a lot mm-hmm. more mania. Um, we get. This is where the tension really starts coming up between them. We do get that great scene where Pattinson goes out at night and and Defoe is up against the lighthouse wall. And we get that great shot of where his shadow is reflected behind yeah, um, yeah. Pattinson. Apparently mm. Defoe hated being up there and was scared of heights, but was just like a solid fucking pro during every take because Defoe's the best. Oh, yeah, probably. Um, yeah. But then we also get the scene where uh, Defoe confronts him over not having wiped the floor, maybe, uh, which mm-hmm. apparently was actually added at, at sort of behest of the producers because they felt like there should be more tension up front, which surprised me because right. it fits so nicely, specifically in the in the character detail that Pattinson doesn't really go off in the scene until Defoe calls him a dog, which is another great call ahead to reveals we get later. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's just taking advantage of a mm-hmm. of a studio note in a, in a clever way, I, which I, I think, I think is it good. works. I mean, and Eggers has said like he basically loved any excuse to write more dialogue for Defoe and had to leave. Like there's heaps of it that got cut before shooting and heaps more that got cut in the editing room because he was just so fun right, to right. write. And I love I love William Defoe's Tis begrimed and bedabbled, unwiped, unwashed, and unstained. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's always very flowery and good. It's so good. But yeah, I, I got I 
I, I kind of agree. I think that's that scene is essential to the ramping tension. Like the, there's a sort of there's a sort of very very brief um, moment where he lets his foot off the gas for a little bit, mm-hmm. where they somewhat befend each other. But the rest of the movie is essentially just constantly ramping um, tension, kind of thing, which is which is pretty admirable considering. It's length. It sustains itself quite well. There's a there's a good rainstorm shortly after this. Uh, fun fact was that there was apparently the weather th- this whole shoot like the shoot sounded miserable, right? It was cold. It was wet. It was constantly raining. Yeah. Uh, apparently the rain that morning on the island while they were shooting other stuff or the peninsula was terrible, and then it cleared up and they had the only good weather of the entire shoot when they needed to do the rain shot, which is very oh, funny. No. But then we get a, yeah. a scene I really like. Um, or, or a scene that never failed to get a really good response in theaters, I should say, maybe. Which is where Robert is uh, painting the lighthouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a pretty funny scene. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Uh, he, he paints the lighthouse. Uh, Willem Dafoe, once again, is acting like a bit of a dick to him. Uh, giving him a bit too much slack. And I gotta say, it's also just satisfying visually seeing the lighthouse get slowly mm-hmm. painted. Uh, seeing that what that pure white uh, you know as related to the cinematography and then he just falls and 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 whacks himself kind of thing uh, and then the tension immediately res- sort of resolves briefly yeah it's funny that that the way it cuts right when he hits the ground it, like gasps in theaters every time it's so good mm-hmm. it's such a it's such a yeah. well-paced impact um, yeah yeah and yeah we get some good we get them yeah like sort of chilling for a little bit here this is the one shot of willem dafoe knitting in the whole movie right after this yeah which yeah he learned how to do in real life for this shot uh yeah he's 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 not even really in focus in that shot either, yeah most of the time which is funny <laughs> and and uh uh there's some fun some fun sort of historical context i got from the commentary in this scene is um there's a bookshelf in the shot and apparently like the i think it's united states lighthouse establishment usle would um as they restocked rotate what was on the bookshelf to keep the keepers entertained uh Mm. and apparently if you look if you were to be able to like zoom in and look closely enough at like the props of this movie pretty much everything is stamped with their logo like they would stamp the cutlery they would stamp everything so you (laughs) didn't fucking steal anything um oh geez but this is also where our first real like the most lovecraftian maybe beat in the whole movie happens which is when Pattinson goes back up into the mechanism of the light to retrieve his cigarettes at night and sees mm. the tentacles. What did you think of this? Yeah. What, what did you think of this beat? Again, yeah, it's 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 hard to know what to make of it um, upon the first viewing. Um, similar to um, or or compounded with the imagery of the the um, the seagull and things like that. It's 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 it's, it's kind of difficult to uh, to ascertain what you know, the sort of central threat or the central psychological conflict is going to be mm-hmm. um, at this point. It just feels like a, a sort of stream of paranoia, which I suppose is the vibe it's going for. And I kind of like it, especially given the fact that I've seen the whole picture now. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I definitely appreciate, you know, introducing either supernatural elements or, you know, elements of paranoia and psychosis it, at that point. It's right after this that the tables really start to turn too, because it's, I think, pretty much the very next scene where Pattinson kills the gull, which is quite mm-hmm. the beat. Um, 
Eggers mm. describes this as being the only thing that looked better in color because you got the red of the gull. But yeah, like, it's it's very vicious. Yeah, he he does it. He does beat the. It's weird to say, but he does beat the seagull to death quite splendidly it, in this movie. It goes on for so much longer than you think, and the way whatever prop they're using begins to stretch and become so yeah. much longer than it should be is really upsetting. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's 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 very it's a very good scene, and it it's it's strange too because it just feels like a a buildup of, mm-hmm. of sort of um, ambient tension rather than one moment that made him snap completely. And, and then we get the tide almost almost literally the tides turning with a shot that Eggers is very upfront about having stolen wholeheartedly from of all things Mary Poppins, which is yeah the shot racing up the lighthouse as the weather vane turns um, and the mm-hmm. weather turns. Oh, I want to shout out speaking of racing up the lighthouse. Um, there's that great shot way earlier on that goes from Pattinson feeding coal. It moves gently into the darkness of the wall and then moves out of the darkness and up through the body of the lighthouse as it gets lighter and lighter, uh, sort of making these moments feel continuous without when they're where they shouldn't be when we're cutting space, um, which is a mm-hmm. trick they use, but temporarily later, which I'm going to shout out. But um, I watched that and I was, but by the third or so viewing was wondering like, how the fuck did they shoot that? Because, you just think about like the narrow body of a lighthouse and going up it like that. Uh, at this point, I didn't know mm-hmm. the lighthouse was fake, and so I wondered if maybe that had something to do with it. Nope, it was just this insanely complicated pulley system, apparently. Um, oh, wow. Very impressive. That's like a, yeah. you know, a, a, a more, a someone who has done some film production kind of thing to notice, I suppose, but it, it really struck me. Sure. Um, yeah, then we get the, the very Poppins weather vane shot. We get... Um, the first time they drink together because they think relief is coming. I, 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 yeah. I want to shout out a fun fact that was dropped around here in the commentary before we talk about this great scene. Um, Willem Dafoe saw the witch, loved it, sought out Eggers, basically got his agent to make a meeting with Eggers and just said like, yo, whatever you're doing next, if you got something for me, I'm in. And that was how he ended up in this movie. Oh, and in interviews, Eggers was talking about doing a... a a non-horror movie next, a Viking drama. Super, okay. super on board for that. Have always personally wanted to yeah. make a Viking movie. Uh, Hell yeah. And uh, Defoe has basically been going around saying in interviews, Defoe's going to be in it, and he's basically been going around saying, like, yep, this was a miserable fucking shoot. I loved every second of it. Can't wait to do more. Uh, well, he does do, do shit with, like, Abel Ferreira and things like that yeah. all the time. I feel like he's a masochist in that sense kind of um, thing. This is, you know, I think he likes the tough conditions. Um, this is a great, this is a great scene. They they drink together for the first time. They sing, although not as much as they're going to later. Um, yeah, they both do a great job of playing drunk. I think. Um, yeah, I th- I think so too. It's they they don't they don't hammer it home too much, kind of thing. Apparently, before um, drunk takes Pattinson, there's a couple of facts about Pattinson that are just grimy. I learned on this commentary, and apparently, yeah, he's yeah, he's a dirty yeah. boy. I think apparently before yeah. takes, he would just shove his fingers down his throat and make himself gag whenever he was playing drunk. Which is oh no, apparently Defoe very much had this attitude of like, if you fucking barf on me, I'm done here, man. <laughs> I mean, I don't blame him. Jesus Christ. There's a but yeah, they do. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, I was just gonna say I was just agreeing. They do a, they do a great job playing drunk. I think a little detail that I really love in this first montage of them drinking together, as they're you know talking about their histories and and just sort of commiserating, is that um, they swap 
means of smoking at one point. There's a shot where we cut to and Defoe is smoking Pattinson's rolled cigarettes that he apparently learned how to roll for the shoot and Pattinson is smoking his pipe. It's just such a nice oh, I didn't like, notice. like huh. <laughs> buddies yeah. drinking kind of bullshit. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. And they kind of... It, well, sort of buddies. Yeah, they, 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 they always oscillate between... Fight here yeah. and then it devolves back into laughter. Mm-hmm. And then it's right yeah, after yeah. this we get the mermaid on the beach. Get that mermaid mm-hmm. pussy. Actually, the mermaid pussy yeah. is a different shot. Uh, but yeah, it's first yeah. shot of the mermaid, though I think, just sitting on the beach. Apparently, there was a lot of safety concerns involved with the in real life waves during the scene, and so Eggers feels the shot is a little compromised. But I love the sound the mermaid makes. Like the sound design of this movie is so good and so important, yeah. mm-hmm. deeply upsetting. <laughs> yeah sound. yeah so, yeah i think that the, the sort of other ambient sound cuts out at that moment if i'm mm-hmm. if this is the mermaid moment i'm remembering yeah, exactly. correctly in the scream doesn't quite feel quite synced to her mouth movements which makes it feel kind of uncanny um yeah great scene yeah it, it, is that the first moment he sees the mermaid i think you're no right, he yeah. sees her earlier underwater oh, in, in the dark yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And which this is, is the first time he which is he an, sees her in the light of day. another great call ahead scene because he sees the logs there and the floating mm. body of winslow we have no idea what any of that means yet at the time right, right, right. um yeah and then we get the storm which apparently the first day the first shot of the storm was shot on literally the day of the worst like it just timed out to be the worst weather they shot at so it's just legit that's just a legit rainstorm um, oh yeah and uh and here's where stuff really starts to break down. We get the, the the first scene that implies there may be some tomfoolery happening with time. What did you think of that turn of events? Uh, I think that's great, especially because it's not really communicated by any sort of ostentatious editing or anything like that. It's just, you know, you, you, cut, you cut to the next scene and apparently a couple of weeks have passed. It's that very is... frightening, I think, in a weird way. Eggers calls that out very deliberately, funnily enough, in the commentary where he says, like, he wanted to keep that dialogue, that first delivery, feel feeling casual to really, like, put you off balance. Um, right. It, and it does. Yeah. It just feels like you, you've missed a great chunk of time along with them. It doesn't really feel like you've had a formal trick played on you kind of thing. And and you and, know. and this to me is, like, maybe the most... F- Im- the most the sort of peak of scenes back to back to back here because we get very quickly here uh, the next scene of them drinking together after the the pulling up of Defoe's rations um yeah yeah where uh they start to drink and shit gets uh real crazy all right wait yeah this isn't oh no it is it is this beginning of this of this sort of chunk of scenes yes um you know they drink there's um there apparently there's this whole <laughs> scene cut out of this chunk where defoe specifically cursed out canadians and even more specifically cursed out ontario uh which Hell yeah frustratingly was not in the deleted scenes of the blu-ray i really Should wanted to hear pirate defoe curse us out breton yeah i know um they, it's always fun seeing canada mentioned though uh, mm-hmm. yeah he was he was a logger in canada we got that little bit of backstory though of course we haven't figured out why exactly he left yet um you sort of get the hint that you know that he's that he's done something real bad but obviously mm-hmm. it's not fully revealed until he spills his beans later on mm-hmm. uh, but we, we haven't quite got there yet yeah they get pretty dang drunk the, this is this is the defoe speech drinking too yeah 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 um 
where he almost sort of cries at the end or something like that. Feels like it affects him emotionally. It, it's it, it, and his his eyes especially pop in this scene as well with he, the black and white cinematography. It, it cuts partway through, but apparently, like Defoe would not blink for those takes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, his eyes are pretty wide open the whole time. It's like weird piercing white saucers all the time. Do you want do you want the full the full curse? I have it here. <laughs> sure, I do it. Damn ye, let Neptune strike ye dead, Winslow. And then he screams, Hark! 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 <laughs> Triton, yeah. hark! Bellow bid our fathers, the Sea King, to rise from the depths, foul, full foul in his fury, black waves teeming with salt foam, to smother this young mouth with pungent slime, to choke ye, engorging your organs till ye turn blue and bloated with bilge and, and brine, and can scream no more, only when he... Crowned in cockle shells, with slithering, tentacled tail and steaming beard, takes up his fell, befinned arms, his coral-tied trident screeches banshee-like in the temptus, and plunges right through your gullet, bursting ye, a bulging bladder no more, but a blasted bloody film now, a nothing for the harpies and the souls of dead sailors to peck and claw and feed upon, only to be lapped up and swallowed by the infinite waters of the dread emperor himself, forgotten to any man, to any time, forgotten to any god or devil, forgotten even to the sea, for any stuff or part of Winslow, even any scantling of your soul is Winslow no more, but is now itself the sea. <laughs> what a what a curse. Those are some bars, man. And I, I, and lo- also I sort of- love Eggers just immediately, or, or I love Pattinson, rather, just immediately diffusing the scene with, all right, have it your way. Yeah, like yeah. It's one of the one of the bo- one of the most overt co- sort of co- traditional comedic beats in the movie, which is fun. Yeah, I loved that too. In it, in it, sort of in an oblique way, forecasts the end of the movie as well. This scene, mm. there's there's a ton of scenes that hyperlink to the end, which is very interesting. Uh, it it really is a second watcher. I'll have to watch it again. We get a great um, a great moment after this uh, a shot I love, which is Pattinson almost stabbing Defoe in his sleep. Uh, mm-hmm. A fun, yeah. a fun commentary fact is that apparently the break on that knife is designed specifically to look like a seagull's beak. But um, I just love the way this shot. He, Pat, Eggers is a great, um, almost Spielbergian approach to a long shot here, where he finds like three or four really distinct frames without ever actually cutting. So it feels like multiple shots, but isn't, uh, which is one of my right. one of my favorite sorts of long shots here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we get Pattinson running, licking the rain, the, the rain, which is apparently them just spraying him with a fire hose. And then yeah, uh, and mumbling to himself. Yeah, he's really starting to lose it. Yeah, apparently the the tongue thing was his idea, Pattinson. <laughs> um, that makes sense. And then still in the series of I think just amazing scenes, we get the 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 jerking off montage. Uh, yeah, which was Hell yeah. the first scene they shot, the jerking off scene. The jerking yeah. off scene and the dog walk scene were the first two days of shooting. Um, and it's just a great line I want to shout out from the director's commentary here, where Eggers, matter of fact, says, The mermaid's labia was based off of shark genitals. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, Makes sense. It's very big. It's th- very This is a, very gr- large. a great montage. I, I think... Eggers shouts it as being a little, a little like puerile. I think specifically like the shot where he basically turns the lighthouse into an erection. Um, <laughs> but it rules. Yeah. The scene is so good. Sure. Uh, what did you think yeah. of him like pulling up the skull of of this sort of? You know, there's a lot of like slithering tentacle matter and all kinds of stuff going on here. How, how did this all land for you? Sure. I think it all. 
yeah, he's throwing a ton of energy at you at once, and it can be hard to take in. But at the same time, I think this is where this is sort of the point of the movie when when the stuff it's really sort of dealing with really begins to to emerge in clarify itself in an, in a kind of neat way. All the sort of uh, you know comparatively more vague groundwork that was laid in the first half of the movie begins to pay off. And it just works as a cool montage, kind of aesthetically as well. It's just an interesting, you know, array of images. Everything on this movie in this movie kind of works on a on a sort of surface level, mm. regardless. So even when it when it feels, it feels like you're lacking a bit of clarity. You're sort of still mm-hmm. helped along by the aesthetics of the thing. I think it helps that this immediately goes to one of the best scenes of the movie, which is the next drinking scene. It just hard cuts to them chugging those bottles and then dancing yeah um, yeah it's is this so where good. he spills his beans too it is this is this is a, a stellar series of moments i love the dancing pattinson's yeah absolutely manic gibberish apparently totally spooked the crew <laughs> like he's got lyrics he's just delivering it in such a broken way yeah yeah they're really kind of really kind of messed up at this point yeah um the the whole intensity of, of them dancing and carousing the the beat where they you know, almost make out and then start punching each other is <laughs> fabulous. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That that's a, again a little on the nose, but still very great. I think <laughs> exactly. And then and then we have them cradling each other, and and yeah. him almost spilling his beans. And he pulls the same trick again, uh, so elegantly, where in order to keep the sort of momentum and singularity of this moment, instead of actually cutting to the next scene, he just glides the camera into the wall and up presumably cutting an unknown amount of time to them upstairs in their bedrooms uh, oh. with actual bean spilling. And I think it's such a tiny formal thing, but I think it really helps like keep you in this consecutive moment, even though it's technically right, two right. scenes. Um, yeah. And then we get the bean spilling. Um, yeah. I have watched this movie six times. I'm pretty sure Pattinson's lying through a bunch of this. I don't know. I don't know what your impression is on one view. It's impossible to say, but I, there's, like that he actually did it, kind of. Yeah, there's something about he... his delivery of "I did not" that, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I definitely see that. I think. I guess the important thing is that he feels guilt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, more important than sp- the specifics of it, but I kind of agree. I think there's definitely something there. Um. Yeah. Or, or he could even be lying about the fact that he could have helped him. It could be that he's putting on guilt that he did. For, for no reason mm-hmm. again it's impossible to tell because um, we we don't actually see the act, no. most of the act itself but but anyway the important thing is that he spilled the beans again again a scene was i feel i feel the montage with the with the willem defoe voice overlaid is meant to be a little funny as well it, it's something um, I, I, I i forgot about like the first three times i saw it and every time i was like oh right they they then immediately segue into this it's almost the most the most direct blurring of reality and dream in some ways here where like it really segues between one and the other without any warning. Um, mm-hmm. And we get that great image of I beam Willem Dafoe. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, which is, yeah, like I love all of that. Um, apparently that shot of Pattinson running out of focus in the rain after this was miserable and made Pattinson want to punch the director briefly. <laughs> um, Why not? And it's, it's, pretty close after this where we see them drinking again and we get the the sort of like house getting 
Oh, no, that's a little bit later. But it's pretty much full mania here, though, as we get uh, them confronting each other. We get that scene where Pattinson does that sort of, like, monkey clap. Um, (laughs) Apparently through, like, flooding scenes, Pattinson would drink rainwater between takes. Um, I feel like that's not good. Edgar sort of, you could almost hear the frown in his voice as he said... Which was rather unsanitary, but it was his choice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he could have got got I don't know, fucking what something bad from that. He could have, he could have taken tetanus. ill. Um, yeah, he could have got tet- tetanus. It's here that we get the grossest thing they drink in the whole movie. It gets full with nail and I. Um, another of my favorite movies. So again, like the source material here, or the the sort of yeah. things they're stealing on. This is where they make apparently what was considered a legit cocktail called thieves oil for a bit which is just a mix of turpentine and honey um what is turpentine but that's resin pine resin turp i was looking that up and i know people use it to like do things like clean cheap turpentine's weird fluid obtained from the resin of live trees uh yeah, mainly it's pines, like tree resin but it's it's a solvent yeah, it, its vapor can irritate the skin and eyes, damage the lungs and respiratory system, as well as the central nervous system when inhaled. Even inhaling it, and it can cause damage to the renal system when ingested, among other things. It's also a fire hazard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, probably shouldn't be mixing it with honey and drinking it. But they get real, real sort of crunk after this. <laughs> That's the like full of King Kong chest beat like madness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and the, the, I think that's near the point where they're like hiding under the table. Is this the, is exactly is, it? No, none of those waves are CG. That's a real wall of water. Um, and apparently, the set after this, Edgar says, was just awful smelling, truly miserable. <laughs> oh, I bet. And and this is where Jesus. like their uh, altercation really hits a peak. I, I something coming off of watching uh, the new David Lynch short that stood out to me is that there's a match strike in here, and Eggers calls it out in the commentary as being a David Lynch match strike, like from from a sound design perspective, which really made That's me laugh. It totally is. Um, this is <laughs> this is fully Pattinson cursing out Defoe. Um, apparently there was a take of this where Robert Pattinson pulled a drawer out, and it actually flew out and hit William's knee, which, <laughs> quote, created an interesting tension on set. Oh, a little bit interesting, sure. Um, Man, I yeah, yeah. This is wild. This is great. Their confrontation is so good. Pattinson's like string of insults, his Moby Dick reference, which Eggers yeah. just says it's kind of unlikely this character would have read Moby Dick, but what can you do? <laughs> exactly. But still, yeah, it's good. And like you said, the accent does wander, but I think it's good because, like, the Boston comes out when he's angry. Mm-hmm. It re- it really kind of signifies him getting serious, kind of thing. Like, it, it creates a real contrast between his sort of reserved self and his angry self, kind of thing. Uh, w- w- which makes this moment even better. He really explodes at at Defoe, and Defoe just kind of sits there at this point. Uh, yeah, he like backs um, up into the hallway. This is where rewatching this movie, I became convinced that this is the uh, no movie has made better use of Willem Defoe's face than this movie. Um, mm-hmm. The different character characteristics they pull out of his face from cartoonish Greek monstrosity to like sad broken old man to puppy dog yeah. to pure mania like he just captures so many different nuances of like obviously Will- willem dafoe is a guy with an amazingly distinct face but i'm not sure i've ever mm-hmm. seen 
a movie utilize as many facets of it effectively as this movie does. It's really wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I mean, agree. Even considering the contrast between the scene where he's putting on the curse, where his eyes are like big spotlights on mm-hmm. on uh, Pattinson, and when he's fully lit in the day daylight here, he just mm-hmm. looks kind of sort of uh, defeated in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but but, but yeah, still so he's having... but still fighting back where he like you know barks liar at him in that really intense way through this scene that that sure sure really sure yeah yeah but he does mm. get his ass beat here um, yeah very much so yeah he almost gets killed and then he gets walked outside like a dog a fun a fun fact is that the guy playing Ephraim Will the real Eph- Eph- Ephraim Winslow was Pattinson's mm. barber oh really um, they just. There was like a struggle to do some of the of the hair and makeup on Nova Scotia, basically. And at one point, Eggers mm-hmm. met this guy, and he just looked like his reference photo for Winslow. And he was just like, okay. "All right, you want to do some underwater training and be in the movie?" <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah. He he has a he has a good face. I think mm-hmm. he has he, he his 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 hair is a good touch too. Um, but yeah, so at this point you know Pattinson's more or less got the better of him mm-hmm. he walks him outside and tries to bury him alive well he's still getting you know cursing cursing Pattinson out all day the while. two they shot all that that's wild um yeah yeah it really feels like the end of a, a relationship and you can feel the the weariness on Pattinson so yeah that's kind of interesting that they sh- shoot it so out of sequence um apparently the vegetation on this island is mainly rose bushes so there's like a time of year where you could come to this island and it would just be covered in roses really yeah um, that's that's wow that'd be that'd be wild uh that that doesn't make sense it feels what what time of the year was this it feels like like the like, middle of winter yeah even it's gonna I don't be like it... fall or something fall or, or yeah like, or like yeah, yeah early spring maybe i could see mm-hmm. um yeah it feels a bit out of time feels cold atmospherically but it's hard to tell exactly when it takes place D- there's a, one of the only true jump scares of this movie happens around around this part mm-hmm, yeah too. Um, yeah it feels very slasher it mm-hmm. feels yeah it feels ripped from a different movie in a weird way and it almost feels kind of funny too again a lot of these these beats really straddle that line mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that i think ari aster has has um has a problem with i think often when ari aster tries to do that he just reveals his own like sadism kind of thing yeah uh but I think a lot of these beats are just meant to be a little ambiguous kind of thing uh, and still serve the story sort of deal. So, yeah, he tries to he tries to. Well, he doesn't try to whack him with an axe. He does beat him with the axe. Mm-hmm. He takes a chunk of it out of his shoulder and then gets beamed right back. Apparently they did this. The beaming by um, Defoe's stunt double would fall and then mm. roll off screen. And then Pattinson would hit the axe against a magnet that would hold it in place and Defoe would roll back in to replace the stunt double dressed for when the camera moved down. Um, <laughs> Jeez, yeah. that's pretty impressive. Oh, that was a fun. That was a fun one. And uh, yeah, Pattinson finally gets to get up to the light, which has become like his goal. You, you increasingly realize he doesn't. It only comes out in moments of like real drunkenness and tension. But slowly, as the movie unfolds, you really realize that like he's becoming obsessed with you know the magic of the light. And, sure. Uh, yeah, it's a symbol of salvation or something he gets, uh, he, for him. He gets to do it here. He does, and he he eventually sort of meets his end in a in a, in a similar manner to to Lost Highway. I don't know the shot of him 
this this sort of close up of him facing the light and and it, and essentially being overwhelmed by it really reminded me of the end of Lost Highway for some weird they, reason. They pulled a uh, again another Lynchian touch. That's a good call. They pull a great old school movie making trick here, which is the way people used to do like Jekyll and Hyde transformations and stuff. Which is they've got the the red makeup on him, the blood, and, oh, they, and they roll right, right. in a red filter just onto the light partway through huh. so that it, it it just starts to you know remove the red so he glows even more um interesting yeah it has this weird otherworldly glow it, yeah that's that's cool and i was wondering how they did that actually truly nightmarish sound design here too um which was yeah it's sort of almost a, <laughs> yeah it almost sounds like it's the the, the the music is clipping or something mm-hmm. At the at the very end, which is especially sort of stark when when you when it sort of transfers to the final shot, which is sort of temporarily and spatially disconnected, which makes it feel even more kind of psychedelic mm-hmm. and, and discomforting and and strange. Like it, it he fa- it cuts from the um, the lighthouse. He falls down the stairs and then he's kind of magically transported mm-hmm. outside. It immediately cuts to a different place in a different time. And he's, you know, getting getting eaten alive. Uh, apparently, the first take of him falling, they didn't, Eggers didn't like, but was like, didn't want to ask the stunt double to do that again. And the stunt double right. saw it and was like, no, that's bad. We have to do it again. Um, oh no, two takes. And yeah, we get, we get. It looks good. He falls well, though. It is, and it, and again, time. it is both like feels painful and feels funny in its abruptness and its sort of prat. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then we get yeah sure. hard cut to to the level of on this shit. This movie is. We get a hard cut to a, a song where I'm immediately like, "Oh, that's A. L. Lloyd, isn't it?" And it, and narrator voice, it was. Um, yeah, it's like called "Doodle Yaller Girls" or something. It's actually one of the songs Defoe sings drunkenly earlier, basically. Mm, okay. Yeah, I thought I. Yeah, I thought I was thinking that, but I wasn't entirely sure. Yeah, it's a it's a ni- it's a nice it's a nice hard cut. It's a very nice final image too. Um, again, it's not overselling it too. He's not like screaming in pain or anything like that. He's just kind of there. Uh, it's a, it's a very frightening final image, and then it's over. He is rendered uh, it, rendered a, a, a weird Prometheus. And sure, and, and it it feels like the f- sort of symbolic ending that Hereditary was going for. Mm-hmm. Or the symbolic final shot that Hereditary was going for, but didn't fight Land. I think I think Hereditary um, oversells it a little bit. It's a little too heavy-handed. I think this is just right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that cut to the final song, great, great final sequence. I think uh, maybe the best sequence in the movie. Uh, do we want to do takes on takes? Sure. That that was a very detailed lighthouse exploration we did, I think. We, yeah. I, I think we did it pretty I I, I warned you. <laughs> no, it's okay. I think I think it's good sometimes. We we had sort of sort of gotten away from going through chronologically, but I think it's a good good thing to try occasionally. Uh but yeah, we can do takes and takes. What do you got? You want to go first? Can I read two reviews I really like of the lighthouse before I do silly ones? Sure. Um one uh, this is, I think, the most popular Letterboxd review for this movie, so it's not really a, a deep pull, but past guest Esther Rosenfeld's uh, Great Lighthouse review makes me laugh every time I read it. Idiots will call this a staggering retelling of the myth of Prometheus through the eyes of the American laborer, the fire of the gods becoming success under capitalism, an unattainable fiction that drives men to maddened violence in their pursuit. Geniuses will understand that this is a movie about getting drunk and almost kissing your homie and then getting even drunker and tending, tenderly holding each other as you drift off to sleep. 
Hell yeah. Which makes me laugh every time. And then internet <laughs> internet, internet friend of mine, Perry R, has a great one-sentence letterbox review of this movie. Fellas, is it gay to put your father figure on a leash? Uh, no. <laughs> or very much so, I suppose, in this case. Just wanted to shout both of those out. And now we'll go to reviews. We will go to uh, reviews. Just scroll through and find... Actually, I should do this on a browser. Uh, apologies for being unprepared. I forgot that the app doesn't do this properly. Uh, Sorry. Because Sorry. Letterbox is good, but not great. Um, Sorry, Letterbox. Yeah, it does its I job. like you. I wish there was a book version of you that was good, honestly. Because, um, <laughs> what, what should we call it? The one people use, Goodreads, is bad. Yeah, I've heard that. I don't use it. I used to, and I just all. I just couldn't be bothered. Wow. This is a half-star review. Sucks. Only two colors in 2019. Come on. How am I supposed to enjoy this on my 4K 31-inch <laughs> monitor, which has true 100S RGB? Um, Weird. It sounds like a review made by a sociopath. Yeah, or a goof. Um, <laughs> I don't know. A big old goof. Yeah. Uh. A- Willem, Willem Dafoe isn't obese, so it's not funny when he farts. Okay. <laughs> I mean, fair. They they won good criticism. Wow, some rough some rough reviews. I'm free, worst experience of my life. Um, <laughs> read all the worst films I've ever seen. What a surreal, depressing movie. <laughs> yeah, why is that a bad... Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, I don't um, know. I mean, I guess if it just... It's not to somebody's sensibilities they can get turned off it, but I I always find it weird to to rate something that harshly when that's the case when it's just yeah it just doesn't vibe with you I don't I don't tend to do that usually hot take but Depends this is a movie, step backwards course, but... for Robert Pattinson compared to Twilight half a star because there were some nice shots of Nova Scotia um fair yeah wild I <laughs> want to shout out before we move on before you do your take. Uh, I'm glad this movie got a, a cinematography nom. It's very deserving. Uh, it's one of the few deserving Oscar noms. It is fucking criminal Willem Dafoe wasn't nominated in this movie. Uh, that's yeah. my take. Uh, I, yeah, think, I, I think, think they're both true. phenomenal. I, like, if I was doing the Harry noms, I might, I might nominate them both. But Dafoe especially, holy shit, he's good in this movie. He gets so, yeah. he gets so much to do. Um, uh, when I watch this again... The, the time before the last time with actually uh, mutual acquaintance to friend uh, Ian, you know, Ian. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We were talking about the Oscar noms and he made a, he made a point about um, Adam Sandler not being nominated saying he, he really liked Sandler's performance, but thought like it wasn't an Oscar performance. Like he wasn't surprised it didn't get an Oscar nom because it didn't, it didn't run the gamut of emotions people sort of require from an Oscar nom. And while I think that, yeah. that the, the, the fact that people look for that is um, bad, and I would absolutely nominate Adam Sandler because his his capturing of that single facet or those narrower facets of emotions is so is so incredible. But um, mm-hmm. this is that Oscar-y, like Defoe is doing this this huge range of th- anyways criminal. No, no, I, I agree with you, but I, I feel like if I was an Oscar voter, I wonder if I just think he's doing kind of a bit, you know? Yeah, like, oh, yeah. I, f- I feel, I mean, you know, like, you know, Oscar I, I voters know are they... bad and dumb. Like, that's not a mystery. I'm not sure, I'm, sure, sure. I'm sure. not really surprised. I, I'm not, 
I'm not surprised. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I get you. It, it is, yeah. This hit me, hit me but, with an abyss oh well. take. Okay. I got the, the Jonathan Rosenbaum review, presumably from, from when it was released, uh, which is just interesting. I think it's a funny little time capsule of, of how people would review movies like The Abyss back in the day. <clears throat> I happened to see The Abyss with someone who only sees about three Hollywood movies a year. In a way, it proved to be an appropriate choice for him because it's a veritable survey of big-budget Hollywood filmmaking in the 80s, as cannily up-to-date as the latest issue of Variety. In this case, up-to-date means a replay of box office hits of the past 30 or 40 years, which only goes to show how well-traveled a terrain, the supposedly brand-new has begun. On the basis of Cameron's previous features, one could call him a professional recycler and one of the most cunning in the business. I mean... Uh, and then he just talks... <laughs> sure. I mean, he's not wrong. He's not he wrong. really is. But it is, uh, it is the, funny to imagine, like, this movie would just be, like, such a, fre- a breath of fresh air in 2020. Yeah, that, uh, that's just why that I, I think this review is so funny looking at it today. Uh, like, like ima- imagining a film like The Abyss... You know, getting a wide release we, and making a lot of money. You you just cut out, so we did some crosstalk there, making the same point. I think I just I just said this movie would feel like such a breath of fresh air in 2020. It's funny to think about that. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, he just talks about influences. Terminator owes a great deal to Road Boyer and Blade Runner. Aliens borrowed from First Blood, sequel to Aliens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, Okay. The Abyss displays the same virtues as its predecessors. The ideological touchstones this time around are a couple of basic polarities. Cold War versus Detente. Detent? I don't pronounce words in real life. In terms of attitudes rather than actual events. In bossy femininity versus nurturing motherhood. And Cameron, man- Cameron manages to juggle and dovetail these two oppositions until they almost begin to seem like two aspects of the same conflict. But here Cameron clones and combines elements from not merely one or two blockbuster hits, but a whole slew of them, including Alien, again, The Ten Commandments, 2001, Star Wars, Close Encounters, the Rambo films E.T., and several Disney features. Cameron's wholesale plunder winds up yielding not one movie, but several of them crammed together. It's a strategy that eventually winds up backfiring. In terms of action and storytelling, the movie is superior to Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade and Batman, but it gradually loses momentum and conviction in its final stretches. By the end, you may be wondering whether the drive to imitate that currently dominates Hollywood may be finally reaching its limits through the law of diminishing returns. Not yet, buddy. A process of devaluation comparable to that outlined by de Tocqueville, whereby diamonds are eventually reduced to pebbles. Um, this is just plot summary. God, plot summary. I don't even like Tim Burton's Batman movies, but imagine how great it would be to have the, the big three movies in theaters be Last Crusade, uh, fucking Batman, which is at least weird and interesting, and The Abyss. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It It is very strange. Yeah. It's only gotten Wild. worse, I guess. The homogenization sure. of the blockbuster. Yeah, way, way worse. Jeez. Earlier, I suggested the two oppositions. He talks about it again. We're, we're made to seem almost identical by the end. This is largely brought about through the maternal nature of the alien force and the film's association of this with both the softer side of Lindsay and the peaceful act- aspects of Detent, all three of which depend... I'm probably mispronouncing that. All three of which develop concurrently in the plot. The reproductive aspect of womanhood neatly ties in with the capacity of the aliens to replicate whatever is in front of them. While the nurturing aspect is what supposedly 
Lily elevates Lindsay into something more suitable for Bud than, quotes the queen bitch of the universe, i.e. an uppity woman, and what elevates the aliens into something more suited for the guidance of mankind than Cold War villains, i.e. a Russian water tentacle. So he's, he's tech, I guess he's obviously talking about the theatrical, which doesn't have, mm-hmm. you know, they're not a nurturing presence really in the theatrical. Um, this still doesn't explain, however, why the aliens don't serve an equally nurturing role for the Montana or coffee, or why the exclusive importance of mankind's encounter with a superior alien intelligence is that it brings about a clincher between Bud and Lindsay. With Christian overtones as they both apparently stand on water, not to mention the heavenly choir that celebrates their kiss. Oh, I forgot. There's like a choir. Um, there's like a choir needle drop at the end. That's wild. Mm. For the answers to these questions and others, we'll obviously have to wait for the sequel. In the meantime, you can ponder the quote from Nietzsche in the press kit. When you look long into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you, which implies that narcissism is what, what's at root of all this compulsive replication. Is that not – I wonder if that quote is not at the actual top of the movie in the theatrical. Yeah, Because the quote is – It's at the top of the which, which made me chuckle. Yeah. It made, it made me sensibly chuckle. It's a little much. Um, but, yeah, so I get. I suppose what he's saying is that, you know, it, it's strange that, you know, the – the, the presence of the aliens mirrors thematically sort of mm. the, the, the intensifying relationship of the two people, which I don't know, I think is fine. It's a kind of a I, fine I way that's... to construct a movie. I mean, I don't disagree with yeah. this, like, you know, this is a bunch of clever theft. That's always been Cameron's move. I just think this is a, a more cohesive version of that. Yeah, and more personal, like mm-hmm. we were saying, and I think that the, the personal part is what makes this whole alien sub, subplot also, sort of I looked serve it as up. a mirror to that. Detente. Detente. There you go. Detente. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that's perfectly okay. And I like the Spielbergian stuff. I like mm-hmm. the divorce dad energy uh, towards the end. Yeah. It's it's perfectly fine with me. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just thought it was a funny, funny review, harking back to simpler times. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the end of our show. So yeah, before we do, uh, you know, goodbyes, I think we should we should plug the thing, right? That makes sense. Yeah, let's plug it. Let's plug it. Sure. So um, we're putting this up in part to say that these might stop going up super regularly. They might still occasionally happen. They might not happen for a while. They might happen somewhere else. We're not super sure um, exactly what the status of Winkies is at the moment. Uh, we will, we will, you know, post on the show Twitter and my Twitter um, when we do know for a fact. Uh, if or as with updates as they come and and as this evolves, but uh, Brett and I are are launching a new show. Um, we are going to we are going to stay on this call and talk about exactly when that is. Uh, probably after this, uh, but um, it should be soon. Uh, I'm, I'm around when you're hearing this, hopefully, if everything works out. And um, you can find out more about that show by going to uh, gamer dot navy or. Um, Patreon, yeah. patreon.com slash phone calls from dad or you can check uh, either of our twitters i'm sure um this will there will be more information out there but we're starting sort of a, a more focused specific project that we're really excited about we've recorded a bunch none of it's up yet we've got some great guests lined up it's going to be really exciting uh but the reality is like breton's in school i work full-time we, we we're, we're not sure how easy it's going to be to balance both of these shows uh and so this one, this one's a bit of a question mark right now for at least the immediate future. Like I said, there's chances it might live somewhere else or something else might happen, but 
we I, I think I, I think I'm safe in speaking for both of us when I say we like doing it and if you know it probably won't die forever or but uh, mm-hmm. just wanted yeah, to, yeah. to let you know and and in case you hadn't heard about this upcoming thing and if you like our patter our our patented sort of dialogues with each other hell yeah uh, but are interested in something more focused something about a, about about this wild thing called video games specifically and featuring um, mm-hmm. probably slightly more regular guests uh some cool guests too i would really recommend going to either of those links again that's gamer.navy or patreon.com slash phone calls from dad or check my twitter um and and find out some more about it uh so yeah thank you for listening this has been yeah thank you very much this has been wiki's diner podcast which by the way is and may continue to be uh, probably not bi-weekly, but a pop culture podcast devoted around a double bill where one of us picks a work we like and one of us picks something we found frustrating. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at, at WikisPod. Um, if you like it and you are like, no, please don't go, more Winkies, please tweet at the show, uh, comment on uh, iTunes, give us those ratings and reviews, and uh, we, we, we that would actually mean something. Uh, you can follow me mm. on Twitter and Letterbox at, at the third wall, T H E number three R D W A L L. And check out our new thing at either of those links I dropped before. I will put them in the description as well of the podcast. Breton, where can people find you? You can find me at Brett Campbell at Letterbox and Mel. You can find me at HackersFan95 on Twitter. That's it. Hell yeah. We're gone. Bye, guys. Um, Bye.